This program was produced at KUSP Central Coast Public Radio and KUSP.org. Greetings and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly. Today, the double life is twice as good. I stole that line from the title of a new book by Jonathan Ames. You may have heard Jonathan here previously. I've spoken to him on these airwaves a number of times. He's a performer, novelist, and essayist, and a lot more, as we'll learn. He gets a lot of his material from his own life, as well he might, since he's led the sort of um, unconventional life that furnishes a lot of material. We'll talk about his many exploits in reality and in his works, which include not only books, but a forthcoming HBO comedy series. Also, a little later in the show, the Big Sur International Short Film Screening Series begins this week at the Henry Miller Library in Big Sur, and we'll hear about that, too. That's all ahead. Okay, so first up on the program, a conversation with Jonathan Ames. I have a hard time classifying Jonathan because he's done so many things, but uh, writer-slash-adventurer is a useful approximation. We'll hear about some of those adventures today. Jonathan is the author of several essay collections, including What's Not to Love and My Less Than Secret Life. His novels include The Extra Man and Wake Up, Sir. And come to think of it, that latter title would have been a good opening line for me in our interview, since uh, Jonathan was just coming to from an afternoon nap when we talked by phone. But uh, instead, I began by asking about his first graphic novel called The Alcoholic, which just came out this past year. So we've got a character here named um, Jonathan A., mm-hmm. the alcoholic of the title. He um, he looks uncannily like you. Uncannily? Well, he, my friend's a good artist. No, but this go is on. Dean Haspiel, the illustrator? Yeah. Oh, he's a friend of yours? Yeah, Dean Haspiel. So did he come up with this idea, or um, did you? Well, it, it was Dean's idea to collaborate. Um, and he want, we've been friends since about 2001, and he kept always saying, we got to work together, we got to work together. And I I wasn't a big graphic novel person, and, you know, but so I was sort of resistant for a few years, but then finally one day I went in with him to DC Comics. He had um, recently finished, or was still working on Harvey Picar's book, The Quitter, and, you know, just wanted me to meet his editor, and the editor wanted me to do a book also, and then Right over lunch, I got an idea for um, like a six-part adult graphic series, graphic comic series. Yeah. Um, so I suddenly over lunch had this notion of like a six-part comic series about an alcoholic with each episode ending in a cliffhanger. Like, there's the alcoholic <laughs> hanging from a fire escape. There's the alcoholic running down the road in his boxer shorts. And... Uh, I ended up pitching that to DC, and then they they liked it, but because of my reputation as a novelist, they wanted me to do it as a graphic novel. So then I kind of expanded the whole thing, um, and it became a much larger story, you know, like mm-hmm. basically the story of a life, not just, you know, and it became less silly in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so this is DC Comics. This is the uh, you know this is the company that gave us Batman and Superman, and now now the alcoholic, yeah, um, a different kind of hero. 
Um, yeah, well, I guess he's a hero. He tries. I mean, you know, it's interesting. Like, I do read reviews or, you know, most of which are in the form of blogs or, um, or you know, Amazon things. And I guess a lot of people see the character as, but as you know, as self-absorbed or whining. And I, you know, I'm not surprised by that characterization, but I feel, although I haven't read the book lately, he, the character is always very aware of that. And, you know, we all struggle. And so this is just someone talking about it, not, you know, so I didn't feel like he was whining or self-pitying. You know, he, he tries not to fall into the traps he does, you know? So I thought that self-awareness kind mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. saved mm-hmm. it. But so my whole point is like, so he's not quite a hero, uh, and certainly the people that don't like the book, they would just think he's self-pitying, but he's heroic, perhaps, in that he keeps trying. Now, now he uh, is named Jonathan A., and he looks just like you. Yes. And he shares um, almost countless details of his biography with you. Yeah, but so many, a lot of differences, though, too. Well, nonetheless, I mean, you, you've got to expect that a lot of us readers will just think he is you. Um, yeah, a lot of people do. Talk us out of that. Um, <laughs> well, let's see. Talk us out of it. I mean, you did have a drinking problem. Uh, I don't. Who said that? Who said that? Oh, I think you told me that once. <laughs> hey, off the record. <laughs> um, but we all have phases in our lives. You know what I mean? Um, and what was once a drinking problem at a certain age, I don't know. Everybody changes, you know. And Buddhism, they say, you know, man rocks across the room and comes back, he's a different person. So for me, nothing is constant too mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm dissolving every day as opposed to evolving. I've played in all my fiction and nonfiction with myself as a character or versions of myself. Um, I guess I'm playing with that Frizzano. When people read fiction, they're like, that's really you. Mm-hmm. And then when you write nonfiction, you're like, you didn't do that, did you? It's like this weird thing. So I called it fiction, yet had him look just like me and had him nearly have my name. But A could stand for alone or anyone or I used to have better answers to that or alcoholic or, you know, and I like the Kafka-esque nature of it. But I mean, to be perfectly frank, like I didn't go to Yale character does oh yeah you, you went to princeton come on hey they're very different <laughs> ask anyone who went to the two schools um let's see his parents are not alive my parents thankfully are alive um i never was i never went out i never went without a drink for 13 years he does you know what i mean We're, mm-hmm. he's, he's a lot different from me yeah um certain events are recreated changed i once did work at an all-girls school for a month but i never was fired he gets fired you, you never had the orgy that got him fired i just said i never got fired <laughs> <laughs> okay well let me uh let me pursue my um really obtuse literal mindedness just for a, a little bit longer and ask about a couple other events okay. uh you know possible parallels between you and jonathan a did you ever wake up in a station wagon with a diminutive elderly lady who who lived in the station wagon with her cats coming onto you? Um, I didn't get into the station wagon. Aha. Uh-huh. But if I you had. I glided into it, <laughs> but backed off saying, I don't think 
I can have sex in there, you know, it's too small. But the fact that she was so <laughs> tiny, I could have had sex with her in there. I mean, she was could have had sex with her in a telephone booth that they still existed. Well, but, back then they probably did. But <laughs> so no, I was. But I felt bad. I said, "I'm sorry." You know, I met her at a bar, and I didn't realize how tiny she was. And not that the tiny—I don't know—tininess wasn't a factor. I, I guess I sobered up once we stepped outside, and the silliness of it hit me. Or, or no, the, I don't know. Something hit me. So did you did you um, like Jonathan A. Binge and Barf your way through uh, your Princeton years? I did vomit a fair amount. Mm-hmm. I don't think I vomited as much as he did, though. Um, but I, there was definitely, yeah, there was a lot of vomiting, which is upsetting. You managed to uh, to be pretty productive, though, at the same time. Fencing team. Uh, well, you not re- really. I only fenced for two years, and then, then I took a year off, and then I was disqualified by the NCAA, so I didn't really ever fence again. Why was that? Because um, I appeared as a male model in an advertisement and some guys on the Columbia team spotted it and reported me. I didn't know, you know, who knew that this was illegal? Um, it was meant so that people like, you know, big college basketball stars wouldn't be doing sneaker ads. Oh, you were, you were um, accused essentially of, of going professional. Mm-hmm. I mean, getting money for being a, an athlete. I know, but it was, it was absurd though because it wasn't like I was wearing a fencing outfit. I was in a pair of underwear well, we should say that this is, I mean, this is one of the many sort of remarkable things that you've done in your life. You were sort of recruited to appear in one of those Calvin Klein ads with the, the famous photographer uh, Bruce Weber taking well, the pictures. Well, I wasn't recruited for a Calvin Klein ad. I was, uh, Bruce Weber did want to take my picture, and he did take my picture. And he included me in a show he did on athletes, in fact, though that wasn't the thing that got me in trouble with the NCAA. Um... And so I did that, and it was actually ended up in the Whitney Museum in 1985, a picture of me on a swing, half naked. Um, so, so let's correct the record. You weren't in Calvin Klein ads, but Bruce yeah. Weber, who, he of the famous Calvin Klein underwear ads, did snap you in your uh, skivvies. Yes. And, uh-huh. and he later wanted, I think, to include me in some ads, but by then I'd fallen off the radar because I quit being a model, um, particularly after I'd gotten my nose broken in a bar fight in Paris and some kind of Hemingway phase when I was 20. Uh, uh, like, like Jonathan I A? I like how my life sounds so <laughs> romantic. In fact, we're going to talk about romance. And, I wake up here. Romanticism, uh, yeah, is a big theme, I think, and I want to talk about that. It, it, but speaking of interesting coincidences, Bruce Weber later made a movie called Broken Noses. I know, about I know. About guys I... boxing in their underwear, at least part of it had guys boxing in their underwear, uh, and you would have been perfect for that. Since you boxed, uh, since you uh, didn't mind uh, stripping down to your underwear for photographs, and you had a broken nose. I know. Well, he and I have, you know, we share something. Uh, I've run into him a little bit later in life, but maybe I'll run into him again. I think I sent him one of my books at one point. Uh Uh-huh. Well, one last question about parallels between you and Jonathan A. Mm -hmm. There's an incident in in, um, The Alcoholic, the graphic novel we're talking about, um, where Jonathan A. goes to dinner with a group of people, including Monica Lewinsky. Mm Mm-hmm who orders a dish that um, unfortunately recalls her relationship with President Clinton, mm-hmm. embarrassing everybody at the dinner uh, except her. Uh, mm-hmm. Did that actually happen? Yes. That's, that's, um, I'll let uh, readers discover for themselves what I'm talking about, but that's, that's quite remarkable because 
I mean, either she's totally unself-aware um, of her reputation, or she was playing with her reputation and, and sort of messing with all you guys. Mm, I don't. I don't. I think it was neither. I think, you know, <clears throat> I think she's innocent in a sense. You know what I mean? Why yeah. shouldn't someone think a kielbasa looks delicious? You know what I mean? Especially if you've never seen one before. Just, you know what I mean? You don't. I mean, rarely does one see a hot dog served on a plate, kind of, you know, with a little slices along the way, I guess, to give it, allow it to breathe. I don't know. You oh. know what I mean? I, I think she should be allowed to think. It, but it, you know, we were all just so hyper aware of who she was or, or what she had done. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, of course, it's innocent to, to, you know, in the sense to to simply go where your appetites lead you, but. Um, but the fact that everybody was thinking along those lines, and just about everybody, I think, who meets Monica Lewinsky probably does sooner or later think of those things. Um, you know, and, and the, that didn't um, deter her. I don't know. It's just kind of interesting to me. Yeah, well, uh, I'm glad she doesn't um, censor herself. I don't know. I, you know, I in no way, I hope that, I mean, I put that incident in because it was pretty remarkable. And, um, I just, um, you know, I just feel bad for someone like that who, you know, not so, in, I don't know, had her life trashed yeah, in a yeah. way, but she seems pretty resilient. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, um, I, you know, as best I could, I wanted the portrayal of her in that to not be mocking, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It more had to do with my oversensitivity her history, and I don't know that everyone else was as freaked out by her ordering that. I One other person, or t- two other people at least have confirmed to me that they were also freaked out <laughs> by it. Um, the guy whose kielbasa it was, I later told that story on stage, and I'd forgotten whose kielbasa it was, but it, it was uh, the writer David Rakoff's. Oh, you see, I, I thought that she had ordered, but, but it was David Rakoff, which makes it even funnier because we all anybody who knows David Rakoff knows that he has an excellent well, no, sense of humor. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, no. It, I think it's clear in the piece. It was the person next to her ordered the kielbasa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, she I just looked at that person's plate. Goes, what is that? That looks delicious. You know. <laughs> and okay, well. And then I mentioned that on stage one time in an improv moment. David Rakoff was there. We we're part of the same show and. And he got on stage and said, yes, I just want to confirm that that story is true. And actually, it was me who ordered the kielbasa. <laughs> um, well, you know, in, in, in the story, um, Jonathan A. is so embarrassed that he, he, quote, astrally projects himself onto the ceiling in yeah, order to survive the moment. Uh, you know, just sort of out-of-body, you know, embarrassment. Um, and it's interesting because uh, you have revealed so much of your life, including a lot of sexual stuff, um, sexual adventures and misadventures, mm-hmm. gastrointestinal episodes, the kind of things that a lot of people keep private. Mm-hmm. Um, but but um, you, you're not terribly embarrassed about that, or are you? Um, well, sometimes I am in retrospect in the moment. But what, I mean, what's your point? I was embarrassed for her. Yeah, yeah. But I, I'm just interesting because you're a guy who, who seems very uninhibited and not easily embarrassed. Um, and and yet, when it came to her, you were you were very sensitive. Well, yeah, I'm more protective of others than myself. Uh huh. Uh huh. I I've always lived by the credo: uh, do to yourself what you wouldn't do to others. 
that does uh that does sum up a, a lot of the um the bits of, of your life that I've picked up from reading your essays and and sometimes uh, fictionalized versions of what you've done. Um you know, in addition to 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 drinking, in fact, I would almost say um more important than drinking in, in the alcoholic is 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 the theme of love. Love? Love, yeah, and, and yeah. frustrated love uh, or or complicated love. Um I guess um I wouldn't disagree with that. I guess in my mind what I if I was to think about the book, I thought it was more about loss. Mm-hmm. Love and loss go hand in hand. Yeah, yeah. Well, the character has a number of, of tortured relationships with women, has a really tragic uh, relationship with a best friend who he, he genuinely loves, uh, but the best friend turns out to be gay, and that causes complications, and um, they go their separate ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's... Um, Maybe the most fully realized love in the story is that with um, Jonathan A. and his, his great aunt, Sadie, yeah. uh, of which you write, um, you know, sometimes they were too close, almost Oedipal, I guess. Um, yeah, I guess sometimes, yeah, you know, yeah, it was a little too close or she would reveal things. Yeah, it's not so much like too close in a bad way, but just, you know, but in some, yeah. Well, well, love is obviously a big love and loss are, are big currents running through a lot or or all of your work. You know, your one of your memoirs is called "What's Not to Love." Mm-hmm. Um, what what has love been for you? If I could ask such a, a big and vague question. Well, I guess I always feel like I don't love enough, or I feel you know, that even the people I love, like, you can't love them enough, and I, or time is racing by, you know, and so, I don't know, or I think love somehow makes me feel some essential loneliness, hmm. you know, that, like, never fully known by another person or can fully know another person. But, so... That's maybe some existential feeling about love, but love, I think, translates for me into um, paying attention and, you know, looking after and, you know, giving. Um, So I guess that's how I love. Well, that sounds like a very, um, you know, healthy idea of love. Thank you. I don't know if it is or not. If it's unhealthy, maybe I'll start coughing. <laughs> well, well, I'm just thinking. Um, nonetheless, again, in the in the bits of of uh, autobiography that you've revealed in your writings, and also in in your characters' lives, love is always well. It doesn't seem to work out too well most of the time. Why do you think that is? Given that your idea of what love should be or what what it is seems seems viable to me. Well, that's because I just came up with that right now. On the phone. <laughs> In the books, I didn't know that. That's because you asked me the question. I had to think about it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I don't know. I mean, I don't really remember what I've written, kind of. Um, you just sort of move on, like clothes. You, let's say you're a real slob, and you just take clothes off, and you put new clothes on, and, and the clothes you take off, you just leave behind. That's kind of like what books are for me, or things I've said. I almost forget them as soon as I say them. So I don't, I think, but if I if I had a look back at the books, yeah, I think people are always, 
They're seeking love. They're seeking connections. They make connections, though. In The Extra Man, my novel, the character really loves his roommate, and they have friendship, and that's love. And in my first novel, the character loves his childhood friend, and that story kind of continues in The Alcoholic. Mm -hmm. So I don't see that. Mm-hmm. I haven't written a lot about romantic love, I guess, or the women in my life too much, because um, some of that stuff maybe too private, or, or I don't know, maybe someday I will. I always loved that Bukowski book, Women. Mm. Um, so that's maybe more cataloging of sex. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, um, so, I don't know, that's such a big question, I can't no, yeah, no. I don't know. Could maybe the Dalai Lama? Um, again, uh, you know, I find myself in the position of, of, of sort of saying to you patterns that I've picked up in your writing, and, and you just profess to, to not remember and maybe to slough off um, each work as you finish it, just like an old uh, outfit. Still, here I go. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking about romanticism and masculinity and how you and your characters were heavily under the spell of kind of archetypal men uh, in American culture from, you know, detectives, uh, Sam Spade, Philip Marlowe, uh, Hemingway, Kerouac, boxers and other he-men of various kinds. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you've, you've done your share of, uh, of, of exploring that, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, you got in bar fights, as you said, uh, you... You have boxed. Um, you've done other masculine, adventurous things, and then there's that other side of you, um, you know, that ha- is kind of self-mocking and, and makes fun of foibles and and, and screw-ups and things like that. And I'm just thinking, you know, this this one masculine idea is sort of has been the domain, you know, pretty much in American culture of waspy types of Gentile types, and this other style of self-mockery of neurosis, um, you know, making fun of oneself is you know, been something that, that Jewish writers and comedians have done particularly well. Mm-hmm. You are Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, has that has that sort of waspy versus Jewish, you know, style, are you consciously aware of that, or is that has that played a part in, in how you tackle these things? Um, well, I guess at different times, I mean, when I was writing The Extra Man, um, I had, a, I guess, a fascination with the externals of wasp culture, since I wouldn't necessarily know the internals. Uh-huh. Um, Despite having gone to Princeton, huh? Yeah, I mean, Princeton really, I must have spurred that on, you know, just the black and white photos, the campus, um, and then living in the town, I, I kind of got a mentor who was an old Philadelphia blue blood wasp, and I just sort of loved his stories of, you know, the characters and the way he dressed. I guess he became a little bit of a father figure, and I began to copy him. And then and then the literature I was reading fused it even more. And I was living in the town of Princeton, was bored, and so developed this whole fantasy life of myself as a waspy young gentleman. But then I knew it was a fantasy because I was, a Jewish man at the end of the 20th century, and I was 
pretending to live in the past in my mind or something a little just you know not all the time but so yeah manhood cultural identity I've been messing around with that stuff um, but I'm not a brainiac writer like Jonathan Franzen who totally understands <laughs> from a 360 degree angle what he's doing you know what I mean yeah I'm I'm more of an improvisational clown who hops on stage and then wants to get backstage and chase the showgirls and you know what I mean and kind of maybe didn't prepare enough for going on stage but he he did have a uh, I think I know hope, hope to give a good show so he gave a good show and then he was I mean my real life has been I I was grandiose with grand I grandiosely I with grandiosity I kind of stated it the other night I said my life is the biggest piece of art I've been working on I mean all the things that I get into at night and I'll never write down but it's been much more exciting and fun than anything I've written <laughs> but, um, so so mixed in there is who am I what am I you know macho feminine you know help you know so. <laughs> um well well this uh obviously the, these questions continue in your latest venture um the uh the tv series you're writing right now for mm-hmm. hbo mm-hmm. um tell us a little bit about this uh what's it called what's the premise mm-hmm. okay uh it's called bored to death uh it's based on a short story i wrote um for mcsweeney's which comes out of san francisco yeah and um and uh, that was about a writer who puts an ad on Craigslist posing as a private detective because he loves the work of Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett. That, and Hammett set most of his mystery fiction in San Francisco. Yeah. But, um, so then, I don't know, I won't go through the whole Hollywood process, but so basically that short story became the inspiration for a much more comedic version of the essential premise of a writer who has an ad on Craigslist advertising as an unlicensed private detective. And so it's now a series, or is going to be a series, um, coming out either in the summer or fall, uh, starring Jason Schwartzman as Jonathan Ames. As um, Jonathan Ames. Oh, my gosh. Ames, yeah. I gave him the full <laughs> last name this time. It's getting crazier and crazier what's happening. <laughs> Um, we should say Jason Schwartzman, uh, he of uh, Rushmore, I Heart Huckabees, uh, Darjeeling Limited. Yeah, and he's a wonderful musician. People should get his albums, uh, Coconut Records and Davey. He puts out his own albums. He writes all the lyrics and the music, and they're really beautiful. A mix of, like, Elliot Smith and the Beatles. I mean, he's very talented. He's a wonderful, wonderful young man. Um, Ted Danson's in the show playing an older mentor writer figure um, uh, comedian Zach Galifianakis is in it they're kind of like the three main people and it's a fascinating new enterprise for me it kind of reminds me of I used to have to write a column every two weeks yeah, which was a very um, set sort of form you know and now same thing with having to write these episodes um, uh, though I do have uh, some other writers now helping me 
strain is on me. And but I have to meet every director, every actor, every costume. It's pretty, it's very demanding. So that's that. I also want to mention to you, um, uh, my novel, The Extra Man, is going to become a movie. They start shooting in a few weeks if everything works out. And uh, that's based on a screenplay I wrote that uh, is all, was also written uh, subsequently uh, by the directors. Um, Robert Pulcini and Sherry Berman, who did American Splendor, which is, you know, an interesting connection because my friend, the artist Dean Haspiel, has drawn for Harvey P. Carr. Um, and so Kevin Klein plays the lead, and Paul Dano plays the young man, who, of course, is based heavily on me. But, uh, and John C. Riley's in it, and Katie Holmes. So, anyway, a lot going on. Gee whiz. Well, um, you know, in uh, American Splendor, uh, Paul Giamatti studied the person he was going to portray, Harvey Picar, mm-hmm. met him, so on and so forth. Has Jason Schwartzman, who's playing Jonathan Ames, has he been studying you? Uh, he did. We spent about a month before we shot the pilot. and I mean, but I told him, you know, the character has my name, but is, <laughs> you know, is like, is his invention, but... But he did sprinkle me in there a little bit, though people were worried he'd be too much like me <laughs> and have no affect to his personality and stuff. But, um, and, but yeah, he's very much his own character. He's made it his own guy. But did he shadow you or do something to... Uh... Well, we just hung out. We're, we've become friends, so we just did a lot of hanging out. We, we went over the script again and again. Um, I kind of showed him the world of Brooklyn, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you've, I think you've coined the term uh, that describes um, sort of the feel of, um, of this series for HBO, uh, noir-otic. No, noir-otic, yeah. That's a great one. Yeah, and then I came across something else, I, how I once described myself, that my personality was comic-depressive. <laughs> so I got to start using that one. <laughs> That's pretty good. It sounds like uh, Bored to Death, the HBO series, it does, does this... Again, gets into this area where you've got the uh, you know sort of waspy or, or gentile you know detective figure meeting up with a, a Jewish character who's got the neurotic thing happening. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Jason isn't too neurotic in it, but he, but yeah, but I, he's a little you know he's very self conscious, which always I guess comes across in life as neurotic. Oh yeah, I, I think that's true, uh, and maybe unfairly so. Yeah. Um when is the series uh gonna hit the hit the tube? I'm not entirely sure. Either the summer or the fall. Wow, that's incredible. That's very exciting. Yeah. And uh, I have a new book coming out in the summer. Called? Uh The Double Life is twice as good. And this is uh memoir again? Uh memoir and fiction. It'll mm-hmm. have the original bored to death short story. So it's it's everything it's all the pieces I've written probably since the last book came out. So roughly, which last prose book, uh, that book came out in 2006. And so I think this new book is everything I've written from 2005 to 2008, if there's anything from 2008 in there. Um, Luckily, it was enough for a book. Mm. Now, now, uh, you know, in your, a lot of your um, essays, you write about, Again, adventures and misadventures, um, which I, I mean, I guess you would have had anyway, even if you weren't a writer. But they they certainly um, give you a lot to write about, and some of them are pretty um, 
Well, semi-dangerous. I mean, there's been, um, you know, pretty bruising boxing matches. Um, yeah, but, it's, you know, it's not like I'm going to Afghanistan like a real writer. I, I mean, I wish I had the guts to do that, but my parents would be really upset. <laughs> well, I don't know how many war correspondents would have, as you did, um, you know, answer a personal ad from some odd guy who wanted to... I know, but they're doing more noble things. <laughs> well, so there is a war correspondent <laughs> who really does like my work. And I'm like, dude, you're the one putting your life on the line. I'm just being perverted. <laughs> I should finish that story, though. You answered a personal ad from some guy who wanted to box mm-hmm. a stranger in his apartment. The loser... Uh, in a hotel room. In a hotel room, yeah. And the loser would have to perform an act I can't even describe on radio. And you did it. I mean, you actually did the boxing. You you won, so you didn't have to do anything. Yeah, no, uh, I skedaddled. You skedaddled. But still, I mean, I would have been, not only does it sound strange and twisted, but it sounds potentially dangerous. Who knows what a character like that would end up doing, you know? so I know, but I, the Tennessee Williams <laughs> thing should be on my grave. Which yeah, is? I relied on the comfort of strangers. Or something or on the kindness I relied on I was, the kind, I was going to kindness say kindness strangers strangers and they've been strange have been very kind to me mm-hmm. uh, well let me just ask one one last question um, you have been again uh, putting your bits of your life out in, in various forms for quite a while now and not just in novels and your own autobiographical writings but um now they found their way into a comic book. Uh, there have been performances. You're a performance artist, storyteller. Yeah, I got all this stuff on you, the Moth on iTunes, I think. That's that, yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, musicians have have uh, <sighs> written you up in song. There's the rock band, the National. There's also one Ring oh, yeah, Zero. Oh yeah, heard about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, their album Boxer is based on you, right? Uh, I don't know about that, but the second song of the album has a line from the Extra Man and. And I, I, at one point, I heard they were totally acknowledging me at concerts, and then I did briefly meet the lead singer, and really nice guy. I happen to really like that band. Um, yeah, and, and, and One Ring Zero did a good song based on one of your stories? Well, I wrote the lyrics. And they did a great tune. Yeah, and yeah. you know, there was a song, I think, called Jonathan by this band called Mimi Ferocious. <laughs> you should check it out. And it's all about, and it won, like, some kind of, you know, major top 40 best alternative hit of like 2004 or something. Um, wow. Check it out, Mimi Ferocious. And it's definitely based on you. Oh, yeah. It's like all about reading my stuff in the New York press back in the day uh, before uh. the blog took over the world. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that should be a movie. The blog. So <laughs> <laughs> the blob. Um, so... What was my point? Oh, yeah, I like that song, though. Uh, I mean, of course, you know, in a flattering way. It's, you should hear it, though. It's got good lyrics. It says, he says he's ugly, but I think he's beautiful, something like that. So so you've, I mean, fable song, story, TV show now, and a movie. Um, has all of this changed your the way you feel uh, about yourself or the way you feel as you go through life, or is, has it really had little impact? Little impact. <laughs> no, I did get out of credit card debt about 18, two years ago. That was really nice because all of adulthood, I just kind of carried around like a goiter, like debt, that, you know what I mean, to yeah. survive as an artist. Yeah. So I have been doing better as an artist for whatever reason. 
And so that's nice not to have debt. Um, um, no, my sense of self. Well, like I said, I'm always changing. I'm enjoying my adventures. Um, I'm still pretty scared. Um, you know, the more I wake up, the more I feel like I'm dreaming something cheesy like that. Mm, that's not so cheesy. Jonathan, being honest isn't cheesy. Oh, well, thank you. You're a nice guy. I mean, (laughs) I met you, um, in San Francisco several years ago. I think I was on a book tour, or I don't know what I was doing, but you had me read something, and you, I don't know, you had me read a couple of things, and you picked out these really good passages, and then they, they became the staples of what I read from my own book. So you really directed me nicely. Very, I appreciate you, I don't know, I guess taking me seriously, and, and yeah, so thank you. Well, Jonathan, you don't even need to thank me. I mean, uh, thank you. Well, uh, I mean, it's not every day someone... You know, I don't know. You know, I appreciate it. Well, I think what I was picking up on in that passage, if I remember right, was a kind of tenderness that I think is is, um, a really important part of your writing. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Book Forum has asked me to be part of a reading. I'm to read for five minutes, and I'm going to read that passage. Like, you totally pointed out to me a passage of my own book that makes for a perfect little short reading on love. Well, I I remember the passage very well. I think it's... um, it's it's incredibly touching and and true and um, I think uh, every, most human beings should be able to connect with it quite well. And it's not, by the way, about romantic love. It's about just a a, a more general kind of love toward friends and family members. Yeah, it's just about I think the one of the phrases like I don't know just for an eyelash of time saw someone in their totality and felt this overwhelming love for them. That happened to me once. It was actually with my older mentor figure. He, he must have parted, and, and I turned back and saw him about to cross the street, and I just felt such a love for him, but he was already gone for me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and there was just no way to run up and say, I love you. I don't know, it was weird. Well, I bet... Now that person is dead, and I, I, wish, I wish I'd been more present towards the end of their life. You know, we kind of drifted apart the way people do. Mm. Mm. You've, you've remained uh, extremely close um, to your, your great aunt. Yeah. Uh, who, again, is fictionalized in, in The Alcoholic, but, mm-hmm. but um, who's been a real character in your life. Yeah, I was wearing one of her sweaters last night, and this woman who owns a local bar or restaurant said, "Who made that sweater for you?" I said, "My great aunt." And the thing is, uh, she wouldn't even remember now how to knit, but she still recognizes the sweaters when she sees them. Oh. Uh-huh. So, um, her birthday's coming up. She's gonna be ninety-seven. Oh my gosh! Uh, I'm sorry, I just cursed. You can. No, no, no we'll that. we'll deal with that. I was wondering, though, you know, you, you, I know you have a following, and you're probably recognizable to a number of people on the streets of New York, but you're a guy who can still live pretty anonymously uh, in many parts of the country. I'm not sure, being the writer and creator of an HBO series, 
or having a movie based on your book will change that, but it does seem like you're going to be vaulted to yet another level of fame. Is that something that's exciting or, or scary, or both? Well, I don't know, fame. <laughs> Celebrity? Um, you know, Celebrity? <laughs> and as a writer, you know, you aren't recognized. So, mm-hmm. um, but, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I, um... I don't know. I mean, maybe when I was younger, I really wanted to be known as a writer. and But then I think somehow the book business shattered those illusions. And and at some point, I just started just tripping along or something. And I don't know. I don't know. Well, novelists, you know, pure and simple, aren't, you know, they, they surely aren't the, the, the kind of towering figures they were 50, 60 years ago in American culture. Yeah, maybe that's partly it, but not that I wanted to be a towering figure. I guess I wanted to be able to survive, and it, it became clear it was very hard to survive writing books. Yeah, yeah, so you've certainly found a way around that, huh? Uh, I guess I am doing better. It could all go away in a moment. So, but, you know... I don't know. I don't want to think about things too much. Well, well, Jonathan, I guess I'll I'll, I'll leave it at that. But um... all right. And I often say when I part from people, but with you, it makes even more sense. But so I'll say it. So maintain radio contact. Oh, I'd love to. All right. Bye bye. Bye. Jonathan Ames, and here's Jonathan describing and reading that passage that he and I spoke of a moment ago from his novel Wake Up, Sir. The book pays tribute to the Jeeves and Wooster stories of P.G. Woodhouse, and yes, there is a butler named Jeeves, though he may exist only in the mind of the protagonist named Alan. This recording of Jonathan is from an interview I did with him back in uh, 2004. It's fairly self-explanatory, but it's a moment where my character Alan has come upon Jeeves, and, and Jeeves is making Alan's bed, and Jeeves doesn't hear him come into the room, and Alan is sort of struck by his feelings of love for Jeeves. Um, So I'll I'll read this now. And and he says that he almost felt like crying, and then then he tries to explain why he felt like crying. You see, every now and then I glimpse a person in my life for just an eyelash of time, and the dearness of this other human being, in this instance Jeeves, strikes me as a revelation, and my love for them becomes so obvious and clear not obscured by judgments or fears or distractions, the rush of life, and it's a very beautiful feeling, and I'd like to tell the person, but I'm not sure I can express it. Maybe it would frighten them, or maybe it will frighten me to say it. Maybe it will sound hollow and false, and right next to this feeling of my love for them, like something across a breach, is the fragility of it all, the mortality of it all, the hopelessness of it all, and I sense the coming loss before it has even happened, and then usually the mind clouds over, and I'm back to pressing on to the next event. It's all very confusing. One of my problems is that I mix up love and pity. I can't really distinguish the two, but maybe they do go hand in hand, because soon as you love someone, you don't want them to feel pain, but you know they will. You see the tenuous illusions they surround themselves with to keep going, how easily they could be hurt and crushed, and so you pity them, in the same way that deep down you pity yourself for the very same reasons. Regardless of how gloomy it all is, 
I should tell people I love them, but I don't do it nearly enough. When I was living in Princeton, I had a friend who was dying from a brain tumor, and he knew he only had about six months to live, and on the phone one day he said to me in lieu of goodbye, I love you. It wasn't going to be our last phone call, and I wasn't his closest friend by any means, but I could hear in his voice that he was going to say this now to everyone. There was no need any more to hold back. I thought I should adopt the same policy with the people in my life, but I wasn't able to, though to my friend I could say it whenever we spoke over the next few months until he died. Jonathan Ames's new book of stories and essays, The Double Life is Twice as Good, hits the stands in July. His first graphic novel, The Alcoholic, is out from DC Comics, and his new HBO comedy series, Bored to Death, debuts in the fall. Oh, and by the way, I want to amend something rather flipped that I said during the interview, that uh, Bruce Weber's film Broken Noses was about guys boxing in their underwear. That's not a fair summary. It was a portrait of a boxer that included a scene of young boxers horsing around in their briefs. Perhaps Calvin Klein's? I don't know. Now a final piece of Amesiana, a little bit of the song that Jonathan mentioned in the interview, by the band Mimi Ferocious. It's called Jonathan, and um, it's a kind of musical fan letter. This is the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, And to finish today's show, a short conversation about short films. The Big Sur International Short Film Screening Series begins its fourth season later this week at the Henry Miller Library in Big Sur. And I learned all about it from library director Magnus Torin. Magnus, how short is a short film? Um, it varies, but um, the definition that we go by is the one that the Academy of Motion Pictures do, which is 
one minute basically up to 40 minutes. 40 minutes. Yeah. And this is a film series, not a film festival? Correct. What's the difference? Well, the film festival is a, a short period that starts you know, on Monday and ends the following Monday, a week that's a festival. The difference is that a, a screening series that we do actually go over th- three whole months, and it's, a, it's one day a week for 12 nights, essentially. So a long series of short films. Yep, right. How many films did you review before you selected the, the final group that you're going to screen? Both last year and this year, we had around between 850 and 900. So somewhere around around 900, I guess, would be what uh, we went through to select 44 films this year, and I think there were 48 in last year's series. 44 out of about 850, 900. Yep. So it's harder to get into this series than it is to Harvard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we do we do get a tremendous amount of interest in participating from filmmakers from all over the world. I mean, we had we have 40 different countries represented and yeah, I guess, you know, it, it, there's a, there are a lot of good short films out there and and we uh we are brutal in our selection. You're Swedish. Did you uh, give any favoritism to Scandinavian entrants? <laughs> uh <laughs> <laughs> I, not because I'm Swedish, but but I, I and there's no favoritism. But I do <laughs> I do want to say that that actually Norway, Denmark, and Sweden, all three have been. And this year we have a, a great Finnish film. Um, they they do they do um, great film. Why do you think that is? You know, it's so difficult to generalize. But the the the, the culture in Norway, Sweden, and Denmark tend to be looking outward. Um, quite a bit. They're they're interna- just. I think the Dutch culture does the same. There is this international outlook, um, and I think drawing from an international pool of, of of filmmakers and interest across the border is one reason. I think, and I think technology, and of course the standard, the the fact that that equipment and, and material to to work with for filmmakers are, I think, in general easier to get a hold of, for instance, in Sweden, where I'm from, where you can get grants to get equipment to create a film. I've got a, an answer for you, too, that uh, picks up on what you just said. Uh, short films, uh, by their very nature, are typically not commercial. I mean, they're not going to get widespread distribution in theaters and uh, huge box office returns. So in a lot of cases, I'm noticing that they have to be funded by film boards and foundations. Yep, and exactly. that that may be why Scandinavia produces some good ones, and Canada too. Right, right. Um, let's talk about some of the films that you selected this year. Now, I've only had the pleasure of, of viewing two, and one of them was um, called uh, "I Met the Walrus." Mm-hmm. Basically, some creative filmmaker took a, a tape that was recorded by a fourteen-year-old boy back in what year? Do you know? Sixty-nine. Nineteen sixty-nine. Yep. He snuck in to, or, or, or somehow got himself into the hotel room of John Lennon. Right. And recorded on a bad reel-to-reel tape recorder this very funny little interview yeah. uh, by a curious, you know, worshipful 14-year-old boy with a, you know, a huge pop star mm-hmm. about world peace and things like that. Right. And so we have, what we have basically is a kind of bad audio recording of a kind of funny interview, very short, with a possibly stoned John Lennon. Right. You think so? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe, maybe. Uh, it, 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 I think it's, uh, it's, like you said, it's very short. It's only less than five minutes long. <laughs> and, and the interview then is accompanied by whimsical uh, and, and I think poignant 
uh, animations, and, and and just just the 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 fact that it is John Lennon's real voice from the from the from the hotel room um, lends makes the film um, definitely selected. I mean, it was it was a no no brainer that that is going to be in our <laughs> in our in our festival. A rare recording, and uh, and the filmmaker really did this very elaborate animation yeah. uh, to to sort of um, psychedelically, um, you know, visualize the words and thoughts of, of John L- Lennon uh, in animation that reminds me a little bit of the, the era itself, uh, Yellow Submarine, very early uh, Terry Gilliam, Monty Python-esque. Python, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, tell me about some others that you picked and, 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 and any favorites of yours. One of my favorites uh, that I would like to mention is the Bendesira. It's it's uh, Bendesira stands for your turn. I think they translate it to in English. It's a German production entirely shot in Turkey. So it's a Turkish German co-production, and um, this this one struck me as such a remarkably well done film, dramatically and and as far as the storytelling, it's it's very very simple. Um, there are no um, no um, ambitions beyond a celebration of film and movies um, in this film that does not have subtitles, which after about two minutes into it, you realize that you can definitely live without because the visual storytelling is so clear. Um, And the the thing that struck me about that film also, which I personally uh, very often um, am drawn to, is is uh, exceptionally good acting and and good editing to to portray people in an in, in with, with an immediacy and an honesty and a clarity and a humor like they do in this one um, I found it remarkable yeah, this is the other film that I was able to see, and um, the story involves um, a love of cinema and it's and how meaningful it is to to kids. So you never get tired of, of filmmakers making films about how much they love film? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I guess not. I don't know if I have seen... Uh, there are, of course, several, but no. Cinema that, parodies, that, of course. Yeah, and that to me uh, is just uh, um, um, self-evident, basically. I mean, if you are passionate about the medium that you work in, uh, you know, the first subject that comes to mind might very well be a celebration of that very thing. Mm-hmm. Having uh, viewed now, just this year, 850 aspirants uh, to this film series, 850 short films or 900 short films from around the world, and having done so in previous years also, I'd say you're quite an expert on the form. What can you say in general about the difference between short films and long films or, or full-length films other than duration? You can compare it to a novel and a short story. Mm-hmm. You can compare it maybe even to a poem, um, you know, a limerick, for instance. Let's say we're making a joke. We're actually creating a film to really tell one single joke. That's something that you can do in a short film. You can also, you, filmmakers that make short films can take license differently than you do when you have a feature film uh, on your plate. Um, th- there is a little more risk-taking, both dramatically and visually, and in, in many ways, short films are, I think, pushing the envelope a little bit for, for filmmakers. And I'm, I'm sure that many, many filmmakers have, have gotten the, their inspiration and chops from having done uh, uh, many, many short films uh, prior to embarking on their big feature. I, I think that's the case. So uh, of the of the hundreds that you've seen, do you see any future um, 
uh, name your favorite filmmaker. Any future Bergmans? Any future uh, Fellinis? Any future um, yeah. <laughs> Spielbergs? You know, that's so tough to say. I mean, there are, there are, of course. I mean, on the line, the one film we're we're showing on the first Thursday this year. Um, you know, I'm sorry that I actually space out on his name now, but the director. <laughs> but that's that's uh, that's a film that, again, for me personally, that it's a it's a kind of film that I very often respond to. It's a very very well told dramatic story, um, and and again, a filmmaker who is able to to with the dialogue, the acting, and the and the editing of a film like that convey the emotion of those people in in a very short amount of time and and actually have a character development that makes you absolutely care about these people very deeply in in less than 14 minutes magnus uh forgive me for asking this next question but you must have seen some really bad films too yes what's yes. The, what's the worst that you can remember <laughs> I mean, there are there are films, in fact, that that I that I really actually do wonder why, uh, how how there's no accounting for bad taste is is the saying, <laughs> and and there are films that have tremendous production value. In other words, there there have been beautiful um, uh, visuals. There there's lights involved. There's a good sound. There may be a, a, a reasonable soundtrack, and then the story and the acting is is sometimes I have watched a film for three minutes, four minutes, thinking, this is on purpose. They're joking with me. Mm, mm. But in the end, I realized that they are not. <laughs> and, and, and so, the, you know, the, it's, it's, you know I, what, do, what does one say? I mean, I just know that there is no accounting for it. I have, I have no idea. I feel almost pity sometimes for people having put so much effort into something that's so absolutely uh, trite. So, uh, in addition to maybe spotting a few future um, Fellinis, you've found a future Ed Wood there, perhaps. Yes, <laughs> and I mean, also feel like you know maybe in a subtle way saying that maybe you should think about something else to do. <laughs> how, how can people find out more about the series? Um, by going to the Henry Miller Library website is the best place. Which is henrymiller.org, and it is the fourth international Big Sur short film series. Yep. Well, well, Magnus, thank you. Thank you, Robert. The fourth annual Big Sur International Short Film Screening Series runs from June 11th through August 30th at the Henry Miller Memorial Library in Big Sur. Learn more about it at henrymiller.org.